Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Revelation 10, 8 and 9. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend David Apple, to continue our discussion of Revelation. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, Willie. Yeah, doing well. Good to be with you guys. Z, you, you good out in the prairie there? Yeah, actually, yesterday was a little wild for us out here in the prairie. We had a, a massive thunderstorm roll through, uh, gave us about two to three inches of rain in some places, and hailstones the size of golf balls. So, it so, was, so DARPA is activated in the Dakotas right now. Apparently, it's true. The first, the first woe is finished. The others are coming. <laughs> I was thinking that there was fire mixed in there a little bit too, but alas, it Good. was not. A hundred pound heavy, heavyweight hailstones. So, but uh, D, no, <laughs> yeah. So, sorry. Go ahead, David. How is the uh, the weather in Paducah? It's good. We uh, we were supposed to get a big rainstorm today from the hurricane. That uh, when this is broadcast, you know, I don't I don't know exactly when it'll come out. But we were supposed to get hit by some of that water that was coming up from um, the hur- hurricane Ida, but it turned away, I guess, at the last minute. And we were spared, but we did have a change in the in the temperature. It finally went below ninety, and uh, makes makes me think that fall is right around the corner. But I know summer's coming again. Right, yeah, it's gonna be nice when fall gets here. Um, hot here in Illinois too, and just waiting on fall, waiting on the the Halloween season, if you will. Uh, yeah. you know the the spooky season as it were. So we're the gourd season as the gourd were. season. Gourds are looking okay. Gourds are coming along. Yeah, you had a bit you had a bumper crop last year, didn't you? Right. Yeah. The the gourds will never be stopped. Um even even when I think they're gone, I'll push back some weeds or something and there there are more gourds. So I am Jonah in a way, except <laughs> except my gourds die and then come back. <laughs> and then do it again. So I don't know the prophetic significance of my gourd patch, but you know, if anyone has uh, eyes to see, they can let me know. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So 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 far so good. Um. You know, looking forward to that season. Looking forward to this season of a word fitly spoken. Continuing on, got some some exciting stuff uh, coming up for you, including today's episode uh, where we're going to pick up on Revelation chapter ten. Now, it's been a little while since we have done a Revelation episode, the first one of this season, and I don't remember where it was in the last season. But we're going to pick up in chapter 10. But before we do, as we are currently living, apparently, in the book of Revelation, um, (laughs) according to some, and some people would say, nope, it's already happened. And some people would say, right, it happened in AD 70. And some would say, right, it happened in 1517 or thereabouts. So with that being said, uh, David wisely thought it would be a good idea for us to talk about four views of the book of Revelation, four views on the things that John saw. So David, why don't you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, there's, this is always a question that people have. I've been asked this. I'm sure you guys have gotten this question too. And just for yourself, as you read along in Revelation, um, you want to know when are these things going to happen or have they happened? So um, if you look through kind of the history of the interpretation of the book of John's vision, um, you do kind of see four general schools of thought about that question. When did these things happen? And of course, these things bleed over into each other. I don't think that there's, you know, it's not like one school of thought is completely separate from another, although in a lot of situations they are. But there are aspects to each of these that I think are helpful and especially when you can when you see that and you you hear these different categories it helps you as a as a reader as a student of scripture to think okay when people are saying um like the the dispensationalists you know when they're saying this it, oh that's the futurist view of revelation so um i'll give you guys the four terms and then maybe we can just go through them one at a time the four four general schools are uh, a futurist interpretation 
which is just like it sounds. The things that are written in Revelation are still in our future, obviously in John's future, and still in ours. The, the next one is called the historicist position, which is that the book of Revelation and the things John saw, some of them have happened and some have not. So um, maybe a, an easier way to put that is that he saw kind of the whole scope of church history. And so as we interpret the book of Revelation, we can see different eras or different epochs and kind of big events that happen along the way many of which have already uh, taken place. Then there's the, um, the preterist view, what's called preterism, which is that these things are in our past. John's future, they were still ahead of him, but they're in our past. And this, that term is usually uh, referring to the view that what John saw was largely the Jewish-Roman war and the destruction of the temple um, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire at the time. And then the last one is sort of the, this is the big brain take, right? This is called <laughs> idealism or um, spiritualism, whatever you want to call it, that the things that are written, John didn't really see things that were ever going to happen per se, but he saw kind of the the general patterns or trends that will take place throughout history. He was noticing things is what you're saying. Yeah, God was revealing it. Well, it's kind of like, you know, God was revealing how he's going to deal with his church. But but we shouldn't look and this is where it differs from the other three. The other three views would look for actual historical fulfillments. Idealism would say, well, you should that's even a mistake to begin with, right? Yes, you can see there are times and places where these maybe we could call them archetypes where these archetypes happen, but John wasn't seeing, you know, this refers to this event in history. It's just a trend, a pattern. So um, where do you guys fall on this perspective? <laughs> the million dollar question. That's the important question. <laughs> I think before, honestly, before starting this whole thing, I probably would have, I would have, without knowing these terms, I probably would have fallen more into the idealist sort of view of things. And it's attractive because a lot of the, a lot of my reading of Revelation is sort of, well, what can we say against the the premillennial dispensationalists, which if our listeners um, don't know our view on um, the dispensationalists, they should go back and listen to that episode. You guys did a great job of um, just kind of explaining that view and, and the problems with it. But if you're an idealist, then you just kind of you know, you can check out from that whole discussion and say, well, we shouldn't be looking for, you know, the rapture and, and any of these things because they're not really historical occurrences. Well, no, notice how David didn't actually say what he believes now. Though. Right, right. He just said, this is what I used to believe. <laughs> well, now I am, uh, I'm pretty much, I would, I would put myself pretty heavily in the preterism camp. Hold on. We've got to save David from himself here. Um, they, uh, not without putting words in your mouth, you're referring to a partial preterist position, not a, a full preterist would say that the second coming has happened. Yeah. And these things can be, uh, can be explained, but yes, I, I would not be a full, what's called, there is a distinction, um, between full or as Zelman likes to call me a consistent preterist. That's, that's the view that everything has already happened, even the second coming. And they have ways that they explain that. I, I don't go that far, um, but I do think that much of the book should be taken as referring to the events of 70 AD and the things that happened there. And we, we have talked about this way, way back, the dating of Revelation. If you take that earlier date, if it's pre-70, it's written with a temple still standing, which does help. It does make sense of a lot of things in Revelation. However, um, it certainly does seem that there are still things uh, yet to come to pass. And I, th I feel like the danger with the idealist view is that it enables you to completely ignore anything. And so anything that even looks like what's happening in Revelation, a lot of pastors will go, eh, it's, it's, it's already happened, or eh, it, it's not ever really going to happen. And so we don't have to look at that. I mean, there, and there's also some people who hold to kind of a cyclical view of history. 
so that, you know, perhaps this, these are cycles that repeat themselves, which I mean, that kind of sounds like a, like a cope too, but at the very least, I mean, it's, it's kind of an unhealthy thing to, cause a lot of people, a lot of pastors inadvertently confuse revelation with other things um, about uh, the end times that are mentioned in, in the new Testament, like in the epistles of Paul, the man of lawlessness, things like that. They're certainly related, but they are offered in a bit of a different context from Revelation as well. And those things should probably color the way we look at them. And Zelwyn and I, we've talked about actually doing some episodes on these in the future, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. want to talk about the man of lawlessness in particular in Second Thessalonians. Right. So. But I mean, and I'm not a, a futurist by any means, but I, I would... I would also like to say that just because you believe that these things are going to come to pass or some of these things are going to come to pass doesn't make you a um a dispensationalist either. All dispensationalists or all premillennial dispensationalists are by nature futurists, but not all futurists would be premillennial yeah. dispensationalists. Yeah, that's um, fair. Because it's a little I mean, look, when you're reading when we when we're in a time where we're looking toward forced injections or you can't buy or sell things when you see language in a book about a talking image and then you and then you walk in your living room uh. <laughs> right you walk in your you, you you know you, you you pull one out of your pocket or whatever i'm just i, I get it is what i'm saying i can see where people might be a little bit suspicious of things um Zelwyn, uh you're a you're a dispensationalist uh, where do you fall on that i'm a dispensationalist <laughs> <laughs> no he's not folks he's not, if you're just tuning in for the first time these are jokes, and we have them. Um, Zelwyn, have uh, wh- them. where do you fall on the spectrum? The revelation spectrum. The- <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. As far as the, the spectrum of revelation, I would probably tend to agree with David. You know, I, I do see a great value in the more partial preterist kind of point of view that there's a lot of this a lot of these warnings are preparing Christians, especially in that time, but for all times, really. And that's something I think we should talk about. But as preparing them for the great period of tribulation, which was to come, especially as you say, with the destruction of the temple and all that that entails. Now, does that mean that this book has no relevance for us today? Of course not. I mean, it has a lot to say to us today because a lot of what Jesus, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about in the book of Revelation, as well as in all of the accounts of the coming end, are things which we do well to pay attention to. You know, we need to pay attention to these things because, yes, you know, there will come an end of all things. And yes, we too are facing times of great tribulation. But exactly, you know, do we want to go so far as to say, like, you know, with my newspaper in my hand and say, like, this is what is happening right here, right now, you know, that's, I think, the, the the caricature that people get worried about and things that we try to argue against, right? Right. And I think this is going to really come become more difficult when I, in our discussion when we get to the Antichrist and his messenger and things like that. And especially in a Lutheran setting, because there has been a historic figure that Lutherans have identified as the Antichrist, or at least an office, which right. complicates things for us a little bit, which complicates things for the historicist view, because here we're... 500 years removed from that exegesis. And we now have new antichrists. And of course, many antichrists have come into the world too. And so my admonition is, even if we would, if we were to say that some of the, th- of the things in Revelation have come to pass, that is not an excuse to not be on the lookout for antichrists. That's not to say we aren't living in the end times. It's not to say that certain aspects of Revelation will not be played out even within our lifetimes. That we do go against the newspaper style exegesis, and yet the Bible does admonish us to discern the signs right. of the end. And and that's outside of Revelation. That's the words of God. So we, I mean, Revelation is the word of God. You know what I mean? Uh, anyway, right. Uh, right. but it's outside of the, the book of Revelation because people tend to say, well, Revelation's complicated. Okay, well, here outside you have discern these signs. And part of those signs are clearly fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. The words of our Lord are in the Olivet Discourse. And yet still the admonition in days, you'll see these signs coming. This is what it looks like. The destruction of the temple is both a final judgment upon a nation and a type of the full judgment that is to come upon all who reject Christ. So an important lesson to learn there. And so 
I guess what we're saying is after 15 minutes on this is that revelation is complicated. Yeah. And maybe let me, let me just kind of put a, a disclaimer in for, or, or an example here where preterism is helpful Compare it to what Jesus says in um, what's called the Olivet Discourse, right, where he's talking about the destruction of the temple, and he's, he's talking about this abomination of desolation, and he tells his disciples, when you see these things happen, run for the hills, right? So if, if you're not a preterist on that, what do you do with that command? It, is he telling his disciples to go to from one literal place to another literal place, Jerusalem to um, you know, somewhere outside of Jerusalem, or you have to spiritualize it, right? So you have to say, this means take cover spiritually somehow in some way. And that's, that's fine. That's good. But I think preterism gives you the, a better foundation for, hey, this was talking about a specific event in history that then we can take a, um, you know, it's kind of a combination of the preterist and a little bit of the idealist kind of things. All of this is to say, just because you're a preterist doesn't mean that you lock yourself into, well, since these things already happened, they're of no um, importance to us now, other than just like, a, well, that's neat that that happened um, a long time ago. Right. And again, we do want to point out that preterist is a very loaded word. So that some would yeah. say, well, what you what you're describing, what we're describing here is, is somewhere between pr- full preterism and historicism. And I think that would be fair. Because when people hear preterists, they're going to think of a group that is an error, again, that says Jesus has already returned, and that the actual second coming was just that judgment upon Jerusalem. And we would reject that. You know, we're kind of taking taking that word and using it in a very specific way here, so we don't want people to get the, get the wrong idea at all. Yeah. Let me give you an example of the, the historicist view, because I think this is the one that's usually, you guys mentioned it already, it's usually associated with Luther and uh, with other Protestant interpreters. But this this is from Luther's preface to uh, Revelation. Okay, so he didn't have a commentary, full-blown commentary, but he kind of outlines his approach like this. So I'll just read it and we can, um, uh, I don't know if there's too much that we need to comment on, but here's what he says. Since it's intended as a revelation of things that are to happen in the future, and especially of tribulations and disasters that were to come upon Christendom, We consider that the first and surest step toward finding its interpretation is to take from history the events and disasters that have come upon Christendom until now and hold them up alongside of these images and so compare them very carefully. If then the two perfectly coincided and squared with one another, we could build on that as a sure or at least an unobjectionable interpretation. Okay, so what he's saying there is you take the events of history up till wherever you are in time. So for Luther, that's 1500s. And you just say, hey, where do where do the things that we see in church history fit in with what John saw in these images? And so Luther ends up in some kind of strange places, like we'll look at in a minute in chapter 10. He says that this angel who gives John the scroll to eat is the, the Antichrist, or, or I'm sorry, is the papacy. And you kind of are left scratching your head and saying, well, why would he get, how would he get there with that? Well, it's because of that pre, you know, the hermeneutic of historicism, which is all these things John are seeing have kind of happened down through the ages. And you've just got to find where you are in that, in the timeline. Willie, I can't help but notice before we go into break, though, that you didn't actually say where you fell into things. Well, I... That's how I roll. Um, He's the host of the show. He has privileges. Right. My my job is to put you guys over. That's my job. Uh, no, I mean, I, obviously I'm very sympathetic to the early dating of Revelation. As I said, I think interpreting it in light of a standing temple helps make a lot more sense of the verses. That said, I'm not completely opposed to the fact that a final Antichrist would come any Anything that we do to try to explain the mark or the identity of the final Antichrist or things like that are indeed speculations. So there's no sure. So it's not entirely safe to say, well, he's already came, so don't worry about this, if that makes sense. I think that puts us in a bit of a precarious position. Uh, and, and it puts a lot of Lutherans and, and, well, Christians in general 
in a position of compromising where they shouldn't because perhaps they've been told, well, you don't really have to worry about this kind of thing coming to pass. So that's kind of where I am on this, that I think all of it discourse, 100% is about the destruction of the temple. Okay, I don't think there's any normal way to interpret that without that. But certain aspects of Revelation, it, it, it just really depends on how on how we're reading it. I don't really have an issue with interpreting it this way either, much in the same way that the prophecies of Isaiah have a local fulfillment and then a future fulfillment. I don't know why we couldn't see both of these things happening. And Zelman and I have talked about this privately, and he rolls his eyes at me. But you understand <laughs> that Isaiah, that things that Isaiah prophesies come to pass in his lifetime, and then, or, you know, or, you know, within a short time after in certain cases, but, you know, there's a local fulfillment. And then, of course, that ultimate fulfillment is in Christ with these prophecies. But we do have both recorded, right? And then Willie and I also get into literal fist fights over these questions. Right. So, but even yeah. someone would admit that, that there are things in the Old Testament that, that are fulfilled in the Old Testament and are quoted in the New Testament. Yeah. In regards to Christ, and so that doesn't nullify right. anything. Right. It doesn't right. nullify. So that's sort of where I where I sit on this. That I don't know why I don't know why we can I don't think we can necessarily exclude that option either. Much as much as, as like I said, the there's there is a damning judgment upon Israel in the destruction of the temple, prophesied by our Lord Jesus Christ, and and so it can it comes to pass because of their rejection of Jesus as Savior. Of Jesus as the Messiah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so that does come to pass. There's absolutely some stuff that's already been, that's already happened, but I do believe that there's stuff still yet to come. When you, uh, well, when you put your shirt on in the morning and you tuck it in, you always got to make sure that you, um, you know, you got to put your hands up over your head, bend over and touch your toes. You don't want that thing on so tight that you can't move around. This is, these are style tips. And are you, um, are you attacking we, the, 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 the ministerium again? We need, I just, I feel <laughs> like I need to say this. That is how you should read the book of revelation too. You know, hang loose in there. I'm not saying anything goes right. You can't, you do have to tuck your shirt in, but it shouldn't be on so tight that you can't move around. Yeah. And, and I think that that's very important too. And, and like I said, I, I think that there's, but there's some inherent dangers here when you read the Bible as not speaking to anything or, or as only theoretic or hypothetically speaking to things, you know, that, that may come to pass because then it just becomes, well, it's not really applying to us. Again, I think that that's how people become uh, spiritually uh, weak and sort of spiritually blind. That well, there's really no extant dangers out there that are coming. Now, nobody really says that, but some people do. Some people take, and I know we're going overtime here, but some people take, like, for instance, they'll take Luther's quote, if I knew the world was ending, uh, I, tomorrow I would go plant a tree, right? Well, okay, that's cool, but Luther's also not telling you to be slack in duty and or things like that. I mean, some people are borderline Millerite. Well, actually, they're not even that, because the Millerites ironically sold their stuff or gave it away and went up on the rooftops to look. Some Lutherans become lulled into this sense of security where, well, nothing can ever touch me no matter what I do because it's either all come to pass or it's all finished. And you get lulled into this this false sense of security that way. But we know for a fact that there are malevolent spiritual entities out to tempt us. There are evil civil forces out to corrupt us and to destroy the church. And so if we can read things with an eye, regardless of if you think they've been fulfilled or not, if you can understand them as still contain, as you all have said, containing warnings for the Christian and admonishments for the Christian, uh, then I think we're we're on much uh, steadier ground here and much safer territory for the average Christian. But we have gone over time. It's time for our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this.
everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and David Apple talking about the book of Revelation. Well, if you're still with us after that discussion over the four views of Revelation, we're glad you're back. <laughs> the second coming hasn't happened because we're still here recording. And uh, that's going to really age terribly, though, if it happens between now and airing. But I hope it does. I hope it does, honestly. We won't care if it does. We won't care if it does. It will all be, all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. And that is our prayer. Word fitly spoken, brought to you by the imprecatory Psalms since 2000, whatever, whenever we started. Whenever we got going. (laughs) So, also, if you do have any questions about anything we talked about, remember to check out Word Fitly posting on Facebook and submit your questions there or send us an email, do whatever, and we'll be happy to try to answer any questions that you have either in the group, uh, in a message, or here on the show, depending on how things go. Uh, that being said, too, uh, we are still in discussions of perhaps more social media, although Zelwyn has completely unplugged uh, from everything uh, except for this podcast. So it's going to be increasingly hard for us to have a social media presence. <laughs> although we do have a social media czar, he, too, has unplugged from everything. And we we've really got to quit hiring uh, the Amish to do our uh, to do our social media. Adam's so. memes are too they're too powerful. They uh, they influence these guys way too much. Right, Adam, ironically, on more videos and uh, podcasts than anyone. <laughs> Zellin with his Zellin is Amish, but has this podcast. David is uh, actually a full preterist, but won't admit it. He believed Jesus came back in 1974. When when John Denver won his first Grammy, so I can neither yeah. confirm nor deny this. Yeah, yeah. Here, here we all set, it, and uh, we have an un, we have an episode about unplugging. As I uh, check my phone uh, for Word Fitly messages uh, while we record a Word Fitly podcast, so it's it's like the old evangelical saying, folks: when you point one finger, you've got three fingers pointing back at you, or something like that. That somebody in a Werther's Originals commercial said. All right. That being said, we are back with a word fitly spoken to talk about revelations. Uh, David, please give us the uh, the topic. Uh, yeah. When the, we excuse left, me, the context, please. Mm-hmm. When we left off, we were at the the very end of the angels blowing their trumpets. So this is the second or third cycle of sevens, depending on how you want to take that. There's the seven letters to the churches. Then John has his great vision of the lamb ascending to the throne and the, the scroll. And this is going to be important for chapter 10. He sees the scroll sealed up and then the lamb breaks open the seals. And then the angels blow their trumpets. But the scroll that was sealed um, is now unsealed. And in chapter 10, we're going to see that scroll, I think it's the same scroll, is going to come back into play, but we're not there yet. So we have gotten through six of the angels blowing their trumpets. And as the trumpets blow, there are various judgments that come on the earth. And the end result at the end of chapter nine um, was that I think it said something like nobody repented. So you have these increasing judgments, but also in increasing hostility towards the Lord God. David can't remember what happens at the end of chapter nine because he goes purely by memory. (laughs) I believe that there was thunder and lightning, and uh, that's usually what happens in the book, thunder and lightning. But I think the significant thing, well, it's all significant, but the fact that nobody repents is worth pointing out. So even though you have all these judgments that you would think, hey, this will wake people up, this will shake them, it doesn't. See, there's a future application. It's almost as if we're living in that right right at this moment. But how do we want to break up with, uh, start, break up chapter 10? How do we want to start with it then? Because we have here uh, a, a vision that kind of dominates this whole chapter, right? You know, what is that vision? Yeah, okay. So in chapter 10, you have between the sixth and the seventh trumpet blowing, you have this little, let's call it an interlude. And you had this in uh, in chapter seven as well, where the remember the angel goes out and marks everybody on their head. And then you have the vision of the saints in heaven. Um, that happens between the sixth and the seventh seals being opened. So now you have this repetition between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, you're going to have 
something else happen. And what happens is an angel comes down and we'll skip all the details here just to get the big picture. An angel comes down and he gives John a scroll to eat. John eats it. And then he's going to see, I think what happens afterwards in uh, the book of Revelation is he reveals what was, you know, what was on the scroll is now explained in these images, the woman in the sky and the dragon and all that stuff, the, the beast and all that stuff comes after this. So I think it is a, it's a turning point in the book. It's a significant part of, of what happens in Revelation. Well, okay, well, let's dig into the text then and talk a little bit more about it. Okay, so we have the, the angel coming down from heaven. This is chapter 10, verse 1, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. I mean, it seems to me that this this language is reminiscent of an earlier vision, which we saw, isn't it, David? Uh, the vision of, of Christ himself in, in the opening of the book. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap in those. The I was going to read the quote, but I don't, it's not that important to read the quote. Luther says, and here's the historicist view, Luther says that um, that's kind of, that's just an appearance so Luther says that the angel here should be understood as the papacy with all of its thunderings and uh, the papal proclamations. I think that's just wrong because what's, what the angel oh, shares. Whoa. Can we say that? <laughs> it was just in his preface. He, I think he'd be fine with it. The point of this angel coming this down is This has been a word fitly spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check this out. <laughs> Sorry, go on, go on, Dave. He, the angel shares all these things with Christ. So he is Christ's angel. I don't think he's, you know, a demonic, an imposter. He's not an imposter angel. So the rainbow, take, just look at some of the details, right? The rainbow is what was around, I think it was around the throne in either chapter four or chapter five. You've got Christ's, uh, when John sees Jesus in in chapter one, his feet are like burnished bronze. Well, here the angel shares a similar, you know, his legs are like these pillars of fire, which is what burnishes the bronze. It's I think it's quite clear that the angel here is a verified messenger of the Lord God. Well, especially because like, yeah, with the rainbow, you had the green colored rainbow, the emerald rainbow around the throne in the vision of the, the throne room in chapters four and five, and also just the rainbow being a symbol of, you know, God's promises in general. I mean, you're thinking about the, the rainbow itself, say yeah. like with, with Noah and the flood. And also just the, I would, yeah, I would argue that with like the face with the, like a sun shining and I mean, shining in its force, as it says earlier on. Yeah. We do have something of an angel who is at least speaking with divine authority. Now, why is this the, sure. the case? Well, and, and also, too, I mean, look, you, you go, you know, he's speaking with the divine authority because in eight, he hears the voice from heaven and then he goes to the angel and says to give me the book. Yeah. And then when he eats the book, it's sweet, but it's bitter to the stomach. Is this where Luther thinks it's bad because my stomach's bitter? Ergo, this must be a bad angel. I mean, it's bitter. I mean, I'm ju- you know jumping ahead a little bit here, but it's bitter because of what he has to prophesy, right? Right, like it's it, like receiving the word is sweet, but now he's receiving this prophetic ministry to go out and to preach against these nations and tribes. Yeah, and you know Ezekiel ate a scroll that was full of lamentation and mourning and woe. So right. yeah, just because it makes your your tummy feel bad doesn't mean it's not from God. Usually, right. the opposite, or that it's bad in general, or that it's bad but. in general. But see, this is a, this is a problem we've talked about. Where, <laughs> and I'm not saying this is why Luther, you know, made this thing, but. There is, in modern Lutheranism, there is this tendency to say anything that makes me feel bad must not, must not be from God or must be, you know, something bad. Nope, not the case scripturally. I think the his view there that the angel is the papacy is because he wants to view the six or the seven trumpets as um, these judgments against the church. So he, I think he compared sure. either the fifth or the sixth one to... Well, the rise of Islam. And, and I'm going to, to get into something a little bit esoteric here, as I tend to do on these episodes, but there is um, a tendency, and I think this is fair, so like, now this is way before Luther, but Second Temple era, if you recall, even in the Bible, you have these angels of God who 
do some some dark works like the angel in the last plague of Egypt, for example, right? Who brings death, but still comes from God. And in the second temple era, he's actually given a name and he's cast as kind of a malevolent being. So he's from God, but still not the best guy. And that would be, so Samael is the name that he's given. And so he's kind of this, uh, he, he, he works for God, but he's going to be judged again in Revelation with all of this stuff. So there is at least a kind of an ancient precedent for looking at things this way, I suppose, but that's still a long way from interpreting it as the papacy. I hear Zelwyn laughing in the background there. <laughs> I'm just enjoying your esoteric references. Right. We can we can do the whole thing. We can talk about how up into uh, the early church era, the, uh, some of the church fathers considered uh, Samael and Satan to be to be different beings, to be different <laughs> angels. And they and they're conflated early on, but you know they're conflated even in, in, for some in the Second Temple era, or at least shortly after the the ascension of Christ and the development of the church. So anyway, that's fun. See, we're going to get that Enoch episode one day. We're going to do. A, we should yeah. just do a full deep dive into this stuff. Yeah, you're laying a good foundation. <laughs> All I'm saying is, is word fitly is this weird combination of like Second Temple demonology and like '90s country. So it's just. <laughs> There's not, that, that's why there's no better podcast to be on. <laughs> where, where else well, are you going to find that? You're going to find that on a on a certain uh, on a certain uh, program that deals with modern issues and things like that, etc. No, you won't. You're not going to find that. <laughs> I do have a question though that I, I want to struggle with here. Uh, when it says that he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. I now if if we're going by the typical way of looking at things biblically this is going to be that he's generally facing south right because if you you got to think in terms of the the land of Israel generally and the Mediterranean being the sea so if his right foot is on the sea it means that he's facing southward is there any significance to that i mean why this why this direction of where he's speaking and you know what connection do we have like old testament speaking mm. with that too I hadn't thought about his direction. The sea and the land often gets brought up this way, that the sea represents the Gentiles and the land represents, you know, the people of Israel. So that the angel would stand with a foot on both would indicate there's a universal, some universal import to his authority or universal import to his message, which you're going to see. Um, I hadn't thought anything of the direction. Well, I mean, you could get that, too, because the scriptures very often speak of peoples and nations in terms of water. Yeah. You know, like you get this in the Psalms, too, like the people, you know, the tumults of the seas, the roaring of the, the peoples kind of a thing. Right. Well, until when I was told that there are no nations. <laughs> That's right. That ethnos is just not a word. <laughs> that we find All throughout the, the scriptures, yeah. <laughs> We're just all one. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, is do you think there's a connection to say like, oh, is it Jeremiah that sees things facing away from the north, on facing southward too? This idea of destruction coming from the north in a southerly sort of direction. I mean, because the 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 angel's message here, like Willie pointed out, is one of bitterness. It is one of impending judgment. I would say, or is that going too far? Well, what he's going uh, okay. So let's. Let's put it this way. He brings, we don't know what his message is, right? He brings the scroll. The, okay. the, the focus is going to be on the scroll. And you get this mention of the thunders. There's all these thunders that sound. But then God tells John, don't write what thunder said. So, right. you know, that makes us want to, you know, you could have some great fan fiction there. You, you can have the spinoff <laughs> of Revelation of what was in the thunder. But the import of that is that then it focuses your attention on what does get said. And what does get said is um, eat the scroll. And my understanding is that if you want to know what's on the scroll, you've got to keep reading the book. And so, yes, the book is going to reveal how um, the dragon comes and tries to destroy the woman. Um, The dragon then raises up his beasts. I think those visions in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, that's what's on the scroll. And that's what the angel reveals to John because he eats the scroll. 
but you, that and I'm not I'm not arguing with that. But you do have something of what the angel actually says here, because for one thing, the thunders and the angels are not the same thing, because it says that the angel who you know who I saw standing on the sea raises his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. In verse seven, in the days of the trumpet, uh, that there be no more delay, but that it, but that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Yeah, Just okay. See an, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So there, so there is a message which he hears from this angel, but he doesn't hear, he doesn't write down everything that is said in this one specific vision, which is what the thunders are saying. Yeah. So then the question should be what what happens when the seventh trumpet sounds, and what ends up happening is that you know heaven rejoices because the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of Christ, and there are. There are also flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Right, and well, okay. So is that a is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? You know, these depends on who you are. Right, that's what I'm getting at. The visions of God's power, the message of judgment, is glory for the saints, but it is destruction for the ungodly. So, does the angel come with bad news or good news? That depends on who you are. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the angel bringing a message of judgment is like, oh, this means a terrible time for the church to come. I'm just saying that if he is bringing, you know, disaster from the north, this could very well be just, you know, this proclamation of the judgment which is to come. And like you say, that's All bad right. for who you if you are yeah. Yeah. if you are holding on to your sins, that's bad news. <laughs> that ain't that ain't good news. But for those of us who are in Christ, that is glorious news because the kingdom will be established. Right? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Well, you've been quiet. No, I'm just listening to you go you know go back and forth uh, before I throw in more uh, uh, weird stuff from old grimoires there. But uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, no, I think that this is you know uh, right, and it's it's a good way to read these passages because sometimes people get into Revelation and see it as something of a horror story, and while there are monsters and creatures and doom. Uh, prophesied within Revelation, it's not a horror story. It is the slow march of victory for the church, or the fast march of victory, depending on how you want to read it. But it is Christ, once again, being victorious, and this is how it's going to happen. And so there's going to be birth pangs, and, and that's going to be painful, but it's going to culminate in Christ defeating his enemies and making all things new. And so you don't want to read it as this terribly frightening thing as a Christian. I think that you want to read Revelation as a comforting thing, as certainly a document that warns you of things, but it should give you confidence in Christ, not fear of the world. That's kind of his point, right? I mean, John is writing in this way to inform and to comfort the churches. To warn, but also, I mean, it has to be a message of comfort because we know what the last chapters say. Right. And yeah. and so, and you're going to have, you know, the, the, the martyrs under the altar who had been slain, I'm going to tarry a little bit longer until the fullness of them come in, things like that, which we've already discussed. So it is a direct acknowledgement of the evil and the struggles that will befall the church, but is ultimately about the victory of Christ for the sake of his church. And so, you know, reading it, especially these chapters this way of, okay, it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but your stomach is bitter. Here is the hard word that you're going to have to bring to the nations is a good thing for the church to hear and a good thing for many preachers to hear, I would say, because sometimes you guys have to say strong words to the people, right? Yeah. The message, the message that the world is dying and passing away is it's going to be heard as bad news to those who love the world and who love the present, the present things. But that's, right. that's, you know, why are all these thunders and lightnings and fires, you know, why, how could that possibly be good news? Well, because they're destroying the things that oppose us right now. Well, and I, I remember one read, uh, one author who said something I think applies to this, that evangelization is at heart a polemic mm -hmm. because it is a polemic against your self-sufficiency. It is a polemic against your own hard-heartedness. It is a polemic against the way that you are living. And so there is always going to be that element of attack when we are preaching the gospel in its fullness, you know, that we need to turn away from ourselves, repent, and believe the gospel. So, yeah, no, there, there's always going to be a difficult thing 
about preaching, because you do have to bring that hard word, but it is a hard word which leads to life. Absolutely. Well, we're coming up on the next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi and David Apple talking about the book of Revelation. Well, we went over a little bit of chapter 10, and now we're going to move on into chapter 11. So, David, why don't you just go ahead and dive right in for us? Yeah, so this, um, like I was saying in the last segment, John eats the scroll, and we're not really told what's you know, what's on the scroll. But I think the natural reading of the text is that everything that follows now is what was on that scroll, or it comes about because of the scroll. And this is what Christ opened. We didn't go into this too much, but that's, it's the same scroll. Um, There's no other scroll introduced in the book of Revelation. I suppose you could say, no, no, this is just a new, totally different scroll. But to me, it seems that it makes the most sense to interpret it as, hey, remember back to the scroll that was sealed. Now it's opened. Now it's been eaten by John. And now John is going to show you um, what's on the scroll. So the first thing that he does is he has this little... It's reminiscent of Ezekiel in a lot of ways. He uh, he goes to the temple, and I know we want to talk about which temple he's visiting here, and he's going to measure the temple. Zolan, do you have those verses in front of you there? You want to read those for the people? Yeah, I can read just the first few verses of chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So he's going to go out and measure the temple. And when we start talking about temples, that's when we really get into some dispensationalist, I'm just going to call them errors because they're wrong. Um, But this is also where a discussion of the date of Revelation is important. If you believe it's written before the year 70 AD, 7-0, the temple is still standing. If you believe it's written more, say, like 96, 98, that's long after the temple has been destroyed. And this is where we say this will color how you read this. So Adisbe is going to see this referring to perhaps some future temple, a third temple perhaps, or even Ezekiel's temple, which has not not been built, you know, right? We don't have Ezekiel's temple. Zerubbabel should have built it or around that time, but it's never actually built. The dimensions are different. And so there's been many different interpretations of what Ezekiel's temple would be. So now if you're taking a purely futurist interpretation, you've got this new temple. What does that mean? And so I think that if you're reading this with the idea that another temple is going to be built, you have a lot of soteriological problems here. Okay, namely what? Uh, We talked about this at length on the Dispensationalist episode. So, David, tell us what the issues would be with the building of a new temple. I think the primary issue is the temple uh, is—the reason that you have a temple is so that you have a place for sacrifices. And so if if our thought is that sometime in the future God wants us to build a third temple, well, why would he want that? The assumption would be that he, he needs more sacrifices. So the the blood of the animals, and even if you get into like, well, it's not propitiatory anymore, um, I think you you introduce some 
really odd things that are are really contrary to the whole movement of the New Testament, which is that the things of old, which were good when they were here, have passed away and been replaced by, you know, the body of Christ. So his body is the temple and the church now is the temple. And if we are anticipating some other temple to replace that, I think we're going backwards into the Old Testament um, when we should be standing firm in what we have. Yeah. Do you think that there's a Judaizing tendency here when you interpret it that way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's the, you could also look at how Paul handles circumcision. It would be a similar kind of a thing that we need to, we need to bring back the mosaic order of things. We need to bring back the old, which God has wiped out. Well, and it's important to remember too, when talking about this, uh, the dispensationalist is completely colored by rabbinic Judaism, not the, we'll, we'll say, we'll call it Judaism of the Bible, not the worship prescribed in the Bible in the Old Testament up through the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ. So that, hate to Second Temple this again, but um, Second Temple Judaism is not the same creature as rabbinic Judaism, Talmudic Judaism. But dispensationalists read back through this more recent variation of Judaism, version of Judaism, so that, you know, there were, a lot of them will wear prayer shawls and things like that that come much later. They'll have these silly Seder meals that we, that, that are middle ages at best. And this is, this is what they think is going to be going on in this temple. This is what they think should be preserved. And it's very strange. It doesn't represent what you see in the Bible. It doesn't represent what you see, truly doesn't represent what you see in the worship of believers at the time of the second temple. So even if it did return, it's not what they think it's going to be, right? But it's not going to return because this is all fulfilled in Christ. And so what do we make of it then? Well, we have a temple here. What do we do with it? We know that another temple is not going to be built. That would be completely antithetical. Uh, You could say it's Ezekiel's temple if you want. And so that means that when Christ comes to reign for a literal thousand years, they'll build another temple for some reason. You know, and then presumably in that case, they would be worshiping him in the temple. But again, how many times does the New Testament tell us that God's not there anymore? Okay, that, I mean, the significance of the veil being ripped in two, the significance of the temple being destroyed, and not just by happenstance, but according to the prophecy of Jesus Christ that it would be destroyed. This is not an insignificant event. And so it, it seems to me that what is being measured here is probably... The temple, the <laughs> right? actual temple, the S- Solomon's temple. Well, I'm even I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Herod's Herod's temple. Herod's temple. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even if we want to look at Ezekiel's temple, and that would be Ezekiel's chapters forty through forty-eight. I don't think. I mean, I I tend to think that why the reason that the vision of the third temple was given was not so much a, a game, a like a, a blueprint of like saying this is how I exactly want this temple to be built. It has a very specific purpose, this vision does. And I think you see that purpose in a passage like chapter 43. This is Ezekiel 43, verse 10, where it says, As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and they shall measure the plan. So the whole point of the vision that Ezekiel goes on through in, what, nine or ten chapters, is so that Israel will repent of their sins and will turn back towards the Lord. I don't think that it was ever really intended to be, you know, this is exactly how you're supposed to build this temple. And that's what John is looking at right here. No, I think what, as you said, what John is seeing here is a command to measure the temple, which was still standing, which would have been what we call the second temple, Herod's temple, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and like we said, this is, it really, you know, colors the way you read the book. But it just seems to make more coherent sense with the temple being there. Right. And, and you know, the temple is not the friendliest place for a Christian to be at this time either. Yeah, which is what, <laughs> that's what these witnesses are going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, um, and even even with this too, I'm, I'm kind of skipping ahead too, but just kind of make the case a little bit. Uh, the killing of the witnesses, you know, which is happens, as it says in verse 8, in the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. 
i.e. Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's so he's saying that this is going to happen and their dead bodies are going to lie in the streets of Jerusalem. So, yeah, this is pointing to the temple standing in Jerusalem and the persecution which is happening against the two witnesses at that time. Right. And just don't tell John Hagee who persecutes them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It so, is what it is. So why does he measure the temple? Maybe that's worth talking about. Because you have in the Old Testament, sometimes there's visions of angels with plumb lines. And when they measure the temple, the temple is shown to be very crooked. But in other places like Ezekiel, the measuring of the temple is to see its perfection, right? To see its beauty or, or the measuring of something is meant to protect it, to take it under God's provision. And so here in, uh, in chapter 11, what do you guys take as the, the, what's the purpose of John's measuring this temple? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's a uh, evaluation of, of Israel, because he's ordered not to measure the court of the Gentiles, but only the temple proper. So, and I mean, the text says, Rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, as you've already heard. So, yeah. so that this is um, a weighed and found wanting situation perhaps for the nation. Yeah, I think that's the that's the way I read it too. And so while that's happening, while, you know, while Israel is being measured and found wanting, that's a good way to put it, then you have the witnesses who are who are carrying out, you know, this call to repentance, that's the purpose of the sackcloth. And this these numbers, I think it's worth pointing out we shouldn't take this as literal length of days, but this is a these are symbolic three and a half years, 42 months is the same amount of time as 1260 days. So there is a fullness to this, um, which comes back in the book in, you know, with time, times and half a time. These are all ways that John is communicating the proper amount of time, which, you know, if you take it as the Jewish Roman war, it actually worked out to about that length of time, didn't it? Sure. It was roughly, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. that, in that time. I wanted to point out though, too, these, you know, time, times, half a times, 42, three and a half days, 1260 days, all of it is more or less, you know, like you said, equivalent, which means it is also more or less half of seven, right? Because if seven is the number of perfection, a seven being the number which we see over and over again in the book, half of that being three and a half and all of its equivalents show that this is a time which will go on for a while, but it is not something which is going to endure forever. Permanent. It's not the number yeah. of perfection. And now we know we're not going to get through every bit of 11 here, but even just the next verses, it becomes even more difficult, right? These are the two olive trees, uh, eleven four. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. How well do you know your Old Testament? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because we have clear allusions here to what? Zechariah. Yep. We have clear allusions to Elijah. We have clear allusions to Exodus. Uh, Exodus with Moses. Moses. Right. You know, I mean, this is, it's kind of a, all the prophets rolled up into, yeah, I want to say two, yeah, yeah. not yeah, one, and, but and, two. And so you have Israel being measured and found lacking, and then you have the voice of the greatest prophets here, ones like the great prophets that they would recognize. Yeah, so these two, who are these two witnesses? I think, you know, you guys have done a good job of setting it up as this is these two are representative of the whole, you know, whether you want to say it's the apostles or you want to just say that it's, uh, they represent the totality of the church. That's how I read it is that these are the, you know, in the, the law words, and the prophets, you know, in the words of uh, Zechariah, these are the sons of the new oil and they carry out, you know, again, with this fire coming out of their mouth 
if you take this literalistically, you would expect, you know, these kind of superheroes who are who are wandering through the city. But if you take those as allusions to the prophets, well, we're not necessarily saying that the apostles could breathe fire, but in their preaching, they were fire breathers, right? They were they were preaching repentance, they were preaching Christ and the resurrection, and because of that, they were put to death. But they were vindicated. And they were vindicated when they that vindication will fully happen on the last day, but it also has happened because those who killed them were shown to be in the wrong. Right. You know, we have them. I mean, so they're going to be killed. So they finish their preaching and then the beast descends out of the bottomless pit to make war against them, to overcome them and kill them. So, okay, who is this beast and what is this business about them lying dead in the streets for three and a half days? Well, the beast from the bottomless pit we saw earlier in the book, I believe Apollyon or Abaddon as he's called. Um, And we had talked then about a little bit about who he was, but basically this beast coming up then, I guess you could say the, the king of the demons, which come forth from the pit, those who are causing torment for five months. And then he is making war on these prophetic voices, as it were, and he is putting them to death, silencing them, as it were. I mean, I suppose you could even make reference uh, to the words of Christ. You know, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe anyone, even if you should rise from the dead. You know, it is this idea of they are not listening, even though great signs have been done among them. And this is why, for example, they refuse to let them be buried and also rejoice over their demise. And I think it's also telling here that uh, like with the, the giving of gifts, which would be in verse 10 here, they make Mary in exchange presents. I mean, that's that's language reminiscent of Esther, right? With the uh, the destruction of those who tried to just who just tried to destroy the Jews. So the, it is this idea of rejoicing over and as if there has been deliverance in this sense, that then in that sense, they are, I guess you could say, even serving God in their own minds. And yet this is a, a wicked and demonic uh, right, yeah, the, the wicked are celebrating at the at the slaughter of the prophetic voices. Right. And they think that they're doing well by doing it. You know, there is a time for winsome preaching, but there's also a time for straight fire. And we need to I'm learn ready, that. Willie, go. <laughs> we need to learn that. In the last segment, we talked a little bit about this, um, how the message is not going to be well received by everyone, particularly those who are perishing. And I worry that today some people are preaching a gospel that is no gospel, a gospel that seeks to appease the world. And I'm not just saying in in the so-called liberal denominations or anything like that. I mean in quote-unquote conservative denominations seeking to placate the world in a very compromising way because they'll say, well, we don't want to – Um, destroy these people. We don't want to turn them off because we want them to hear the gospel. But unless they are convicted by the fire of the Lord, (laughs) burning their hearts and making it pure, they're not going to believe anyway that the action of preaching is is to lay low and to raise up, to kill and make alive, right? Spiritually speaking. And so when we're doing all these things that ape the world and that please the world, and we're seeking to make friends with it, we're seeking to make friends with those who have attitudes completely contrary to what God says for the sake of impressing them, it never works. And not only do you leave them in their sins, but you may well find yourself complicit in their sins and dragged down by them yourself. All for the sake of a good worldly presentation. Look in any missions magazine if you want to see that in in popular uh, Christian publishing, right? Or look at the social media with these big events. They're always signaling towards some some problematic political thing because it's the popular thing to do when the biblical witness is what? Contrary to whatever it is that they're endorsing. Okay, whatever it is. And yet we are supposed to take a anti-biblical, anti-common sense approach to certain policies because they say it will reach people. And this is this is what the compromising teachers always do. They always claim to have pure motives, always. And yet what they're really doing is poisoning the well. And so the message, at least of this part of Revelation, is that these who are preaching the true word of God are going to be killed for it. 
And not just that, but the world is going to celebrate. And not just that, but people who are supposedly the people of God are going to celebrate the demise. And we see this, we see this today with the doxing and canceling of faithful men. Okay, so it's a very mild form of this, but we see that. Uh, When we seek to absolutely destroy the lives and livelihood of people who are standing upon the word of God, but speaking against the culture, they are seen as the bad guys by people even among our own ranks in some cases. So I'm not saying that they're directly Revelation 11, but I'm saying that maybe they should take a look at at these passages here. Maybe they should take the measuring rod and see. Yeah, because what, to maybe bring this, this, I think this is a good place to kind of put an end to it here. Um, what ends up happening with these witnesses is that they're martyred, right? They were talking about the power and the significance of martyrdom in the, the life of the church. And, you know, that is that just something that was important long ago in the first century and it, or the first couple of centuries, and it no longer has a place for the church? Or is there, again, maybe this is borrowing that idealist view of revelation, but that it's through uh, martyrdom and the willingness to suffer for the gospel that people actually are convinced of what they won't just listen to, because that's what happens here. So these guys, these two are put to death, and then they are in some way raised up, and the world or those who are there see it happen. And you have seven thousand again, I like Zelwyn's question, how well do you know your Old Testament? You expect it to be that 7,000 are saved. That was Elijah's number, right? That um, there's 7,000 who haven't kissed Baal. But here it's 7,000 die because of it. And the rest that you have kind of an, a reverse remnant thing going on, right? The rest of the world is converted through the, the martyrdom of these witnesses. Right. Well, and think of the, maybe as a final thought for me, at least on this passage is think of the, the comfort which this passage would give to us who want to speak the clear word of God, because yes, it will probably mean death. Yes. I mean, either in a economic sense or a spirit, you know, or a physical sense, even in some cases, But ultimately, what it will mean is that even if the world rejoices over your death in that sense, yet God will give you vindication that he he will, the breath of life will enter into you. You will stand up on your feet, lifted up into heaven on a cloud while your enemies watch, and God will vindicate you in the end. So there is a clear call to faithfulness. There is a clear call to boldness and to recognize that yes, even if things go south right now, God will give you the victory in the end. Well, guys, we are at time. David, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. We've got more revelation coming probably even in this season because we got the second and third woes to get to, and we know that you're looking forward to that. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter and we're fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelman Heidi and David Apple. God love you and God bless. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen.